0: Much information which uh, sounds like it was uh, composed for this day and age. I I actually wrote it about 30 years ago which I guess goes to show that there's um, certain things which continue to bother us. Richard Niles.
1: I'm gonna guess I am Richard Niles and you are Matt Backer. It's been uh, a long time since we've seen each other uh, especially naked uh, yeah. uh, uh, that was on stage with Michael Ball, but that's That's point. right, yes. Yeah. Yes, but anyway, wow, how great to see you. Now, of course, welcome to Musicians Funnies. Music. Yeah. The logo is going to be flopping on the screen. Yeah, now. Yeah. What I really want to know is you've worked with just about every major artist in the history of mankind and some <laughs> from, from the uh, Neanderthal period, I'm sure. Yeah. But, uh, sometimes things happen while we're trying to make a living.
0: I was, I was thinking about this, and it occurred to me that um, a, couple, a couple of instances of funny stuff which happened which involved you. And you, you might not remember this.
1: No, oh, I love the hear of music.
0: The um, first of all, I have to thank you so much for the opportunity that you gave me uh, for playing with Michael Ball. Because aside from the fact that uh, I was well out of my league, and you forced me to lock my game and play with some great musicians. But it was also, you know, instant CV. It was like, you know, just add Richard and your CV will suddenly multiply enormously.
1: That's very sweet of you to say
0: so. Well, you know, it was uh, it it was a great opportunity. And I don't know if you remember, I realize now that you had rather a lot going on. Hmm. And I don't think I really appreciated how much UMDs had going on until a TV show that I was doing some years later, which Steve Brown was MDing, uh-huh. and he had to go off and do a sketch. And he, he passed me his headphones and said, okay, uh, just count the band in. And the absolute cacophony. Uh, during lockdown, I've been uh, a complete space nerd. I've been listening to do- documentaries about uh, Apollo 11 and Apollo 13, and I've become familiar with the whole concept of the communications loop. and it's like that on crack so you've got the gallery you've got the floor you've got the stage manager all this noise happening simultaneously yes and somehow you're going to get your cue out of all that that's right and i don't know if you remember but when Cher played yeah and again we were extremely fortunate because we had you know we had a live band we had these artists coming on
1: fantastic and
0: and Cher came on on a motorcycle and Michael went over to lift her off the motorcycle, oblivious to the fact that she wasn't wearing any, any knickers. <laughs> so they, had to, <laughs> they had to take that all over again because she gave the audience quite a flash. Wow. And again, something I've subsequently learned uh, about you, you string people, and I've been fortunate enough to, to do a lot of orchestral work. And whenever things go wrong, invariably the singer is always right. Yes, and I still marvel at how you're able to turn the oil tanker around I yes. still don't know how you do that well and I've uh, I've seen you do it
1: yeah I, the singer is always right and especially when they're wrong
0: James Brown bless his heart you do this beautiful arrangement of uh, it's a Man's world yes yes I love that and his 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 MD was was conducting it, uh, you know, he thought, oh, great, I got a string orchestra. And of course, James was doing what James does, which is his thing. And if you've got a small band, you know, even a sort of large small band like his, they're all used to following his cues. Right. And I remember listening to, uh, there's a great version of This Is Hip on, I think it's um, The Healer, the Grammy-winning John Lee Hooker thing and uh, Little Village as was Ry Cooter, Jim Keltner, John Hyatt and um, Nick Lowe, they're the band. They do this great version of This Is Hip and they're all totally in tune with him. Yeah, And they change whenever he decides to change. And it's yeah. you know, just just that, that momentary thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's very difficult to do when you got an orchestra. So yes. congratulations, heartfelt thanks, and I still don't know how you do it.
1: Well, let, let me give you a little hint on how I did that. Uh, yeah. Knowing what James Brown was like, yeah. I went over to the string section guys, and of course Gavin Wright was leading, and that made yeah. everything easy because he was a genius, as he yeah. still is. And I said to them, "Look, I'm not conducting this because politically I wasn't allowed to. We had to use yeah. James Brown's yeah. uh, MD, whose name was Sweets. So, yeah. so." and 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 he, he was a lovely guy, but but conducted as if he was dancing the boogaloo. So there was yeah. no actual sensible kind of cueing of the. so I said, "Look, man, you guys have got to understand that James Brown could change anything at any time. So when you see letter B, letter B could go on for the written number of bars. But it could also go on twice as long, or three times as long. It depends on James Brown. So, yeah. so if you know, you've got to be ignore the guy who's dancing over here because really he's not going to tell you anything. Yeah. Look at James Brown all the time. I said he's yeah. the conductor, and so be prepared to change when he wants things to go on, or he wants sections to you know rock out or something. Just keep going around that section, and I. I told them beforehand and which is why they did that and when it got sure. to uh what did we do with the other song we did was uh I got you right I got yeah yeah, yeah. and that one went on and on you yeah. know for for ages and and yeah. and so everybody was everybody was hip to the fact that yeah and unfortunately I wasn't allowed to be on stage which is a great yeah. sorrow to me because I you know it was James Brown but yeah. uh but still, it was great to do the do the charts and also to talk to to James Brown, which was which I found tremendously fun.
0: Yeah, I I, I thought he was a he was a sweetheart, and we saw him in his uh, we saw him in his curlers. Yes, and I subsequently learned that um, my cousin lives in Augusta, and I think prior to the time that we did the show, he'd had the uh, the famous police chase. Right, according to my cousin. Um, you know, he's a, he's, he's a local treasure and the local police force always looked out for him. And on this occasion, uh, the story was he'd been to the dentist and he'd necked a whole bunch of painkillers and sort of sent him to Lally, but, you know, maybe he went off on one. In any case, the, uh, the police were used to dealing with this, but he suddenly got extremely paranoid and hit the accelerator and started heading towards the County line. And so it was the Augusta police who were trying to shoot out his tires, trying to prevent him from crossing the county line, because they knew that once he crossed the county line, he was gonna get arrested. <laughs> um that whole thing of, of of being prepared for the unexpected. Indeed. Ooh, 25 years ago, and you can still see footage of my younger self. Uh, at the BBC, doing later with Steve Earle and Lou Harris. And originally, I'd been hired I, along with Marcus Cliff. I don't know if you know Marcus, great bass player. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, he played with Mark Knopfler and uh, lo- loads of people. We did lots of television together as well. And we were doing this thing, and, and it was your proper, proper unplugged. You know, nothing plugged in at all. He had. His upright bass, I had my dobro, we had mics in front of him, Steve had his old Gibson, and that was it. That was, so we, we did one of the tracks that we'd, we'd rehearsed, although the rehearsal consisted of Steve mainly saying, I hate rehearsing and telling stories about how he used to <laughs> score drugs in the old white city estate. Yeah. And then Mark Cooper, um, who's only recently stepped down as gatekeeper at the, uh, at the BBC, had the bright idea of not doing the second song that we'd rehearsed. But Emily Lou Harris was on. And she was promoting her Wrecking Ball album, which Daniel Lanois produced. Uh, it's a great album. And she was doing it with, with his trio. So it was uh, Brian and Brady Blade and Daniel on guitar and Emmy Lou. And it was really, you know, it was really raw and funky and cool. Nice. But she had a song on her album called Goodbye which was a Steve song, and Steve also had the same song on the album that he was promoting. So Mark Cooper says, hey, why don't you guys do that song? Okay, says Steve. Great. Okay, here we go. Five, four, three, two. So they, they start counting down. So uh, it was Marcus, myself, Steve, amy Lou, and Daniel. So Daniel's got this really cool Firebird 7, and he's going through a little early 50s Fender Deluxe and it's turned down to like about one, but it still sounds cool and he's doing his wibbly thing and he's got his duster coat, and he's got his big hat. And I was, I thought, well, I don't know what's going on, but, um, you know, hey, I just have to play Doberlick. So I just, you know, just listen to the one and then I, 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 I follow that, so that's okay. And I still, to this day, don't know how Marcus did it. But, you know, it's okay if you're playing guitar licks, but during, uh, during lockdown, I've had to do a lot of sessions on bass because I'm the best bass player in my price range. Oh, yeah. Um, and you got to be on the one, you know? Oh, yeah. you got to hit the right chord on the one. And to this day, I still don't know how he did it because he was set behind Steve and he couldn't even see his hands. Right. But, but he got it. So I'm still thinking, well, this is sounding great. And here I am with the legendary Grammy and Oscar winning producer, Daniel Anwar. So I'm feeling happy and comfortable and Daniel's looking really cool. And suddenly he turns around with his back to the camera and he looks at me and he says, what's the next chord? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Emmy and Steve looked really intense. and it still gets shown, I still get paid for it. And, and I'm, I'm actually very proud of it because it's one of those wonderful musical moments which just happened. Yeah. And they both, both look very intense and people have said to me, oh, you know, that must've been a song about an affair that they had because they look so so absolutely, you know, so so, so intense. Yeah. And I suppose I can say this now, um, you don't want to disillusion your audience. And it's, it's kind of like that thing of, the reader and the author come up with this relationship, which might not necessarily be what the author intended when he wrote the right. book, but right. it, it, something happens, and so the listener and the uh, and and the singer
1: was her version of it in the same key as his version.
0: No, no, but you know she was able to do it. Yeah, and. Uh, But the thing was they both knew the song, but they never actually sung it together. So the reason for the the intensity is they didn't know they didn't know who was going to sing which line. Right. But, But they nailed it. Yeah, well good. One take. One take. Marvel. That was the first take, the one, the one that went out. Yeah, nice. And I suppose the lesson from that is um, expect the unexpected. That doesn't mean don't rehearse and and don't prepare. It just means do do all of those things. But something might come out of left field which you're not expecting.
1: Yes. Well, the rehearsal and the uh, uh, pr- preparing uh, prepares you to to have the unexpected. So to react to it because you yeah. wouldn't be able to react fast enough. Uh, what yeah. people don't realize about studio musicians, you have to make really very very fast decisions within a second uh, of what to do, and you have to base that on the environment around you. So, I mean, look, you know, you made a comment about how great it was that I hired you for for the, that thing, but the times that I did hire you, which wasn't enough, but when I did, it was because Be it was because I wanted a somebody. Who could turn on hot rock bitch in a second, and that's what you could always do. Now I I've never been a rock guy. I've never been that person. I'm a I'm a jazz bow, and, yeah. and I and I can play some kind of groovy bluesy stuff. But in terms of especially the real serious rock stuff, you are a fairly masterful chap. And not only that, but you have the greatest guitar collection. In the history of mankind, and um, I was hoping you might have a couple of your your choice uh, guitars lying around that you could show us. But well,
0: yeah, well, there's
1: um, it,
0: well, if you give me a moment, I can I can go out and get what I've got now. Uh, unfortunately, that's... I have uh,
1: I mainly want you to get I'm... out the Supro, man, because that's that's a beautiful looking guitar. Yeah,
0: yeah, I haven't I haven't got that here, but I mean this is a 1946 uh, Gibson LG one. Nice. Which sounds great. Yeah, uh, you know this, this. is my. This is my. This is a Taylor. It's it, it's a. It, it's a great, Jobs worth guitar. We've been around the world together. Yeah. What you were mentioning earlier, um, that ability of people being able to go with the moment and 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 make the music happening. And again, going going back to uh, to Michael Ball. And you know, again, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity you gave me. Uh, because it was a chance to actually play with people. And it might be, I don't know if it's the last, but one of the last shows in which, okay, here we've got later and I guess you've got Austin City Limits in the States and and various shows like that. You've got in France and uh, a few other ones scattered around Europe. But a show in which the music is the star. And You know, the argument is that uh, the music is the star in The Voice or The X Factor. or And I have a lot of friends who work on those shows here and in the States. Mm. So I don't in any way want to denigrate that uh, because they work really hard and they do an exceptionally good job. Um, However, the music isn't the star, the music is accompanying the competition, which is fine. You know, I have no problem with that. like I say, it keeps a lot of my friends gamefully employed. Yeah. But shows in which the music uh, and the performer are the focal point. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing else other than, right, this week we got Montserrat Caballé,
1: And next week we're going to have Joe Cocker. You exactly. Know? Which is what we did. Where does that happen anymore? Right. And, and you know, since you brought up this point, here, here's my problem with those shows. I was at a session for Boyzone. Oh yeah. yeah, and the the executive producer, a man named Cowell, said to me, "You know, Rich, I've got this fantastic idea." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." He says, "I figured out a way because he said the music business sales are going down." we're really worried about this, but I've got an idea that's gonna save the music business. I said, oh really, what's that? And he said, well, I've got a way to make money without selling one record. I said, really, that's interesting. He says, yeah. He said, do you know what premium phone lines are? And I said, no, I have no idea what they are. He said, well, I'm gonna have a competition show where you get all these dramatic stories about these struggling people trying to, you know, become pop stars. And he said, and and the public will will call in and we're gonna make millions. And it doesn't matter if that, if the person who wins the show is successful or not, because we've already made the millions. And so it's and it's completely great. And not only that, the record companies who support it will will give us the money to make it and and it's all it's all taken care of because they will will get to release the records of the artists who win the competition whether they sell a record or not and he said it's genius it's going to save yeah. the music business and okay well from a financial and business point of view he was right but i totally get your concept about you know it's putting a lot of musicians to work well it actually let's let's edit that it's putting some musicians to work it's putting whatever band they hire 10 musicians to work but or it's the
0: production team because and, yeah, and we'll, the production we'll, team yeah and all work. the
1: all those yeah and that's great that's fantastic that those people are working and they do a superb job no question of that but the problem is is that for me and i know this isn't exactly uh musician's funny kind of comment but I, I feel the need to become slightly serious about it in saying I think what it does what it has done to the public is it gives the impression that musicians are meant to be judged on a scale of one to ten and and votes and, and it's some kind of competition whereas you and I know that music is only a competition in terms of Yes, you want to be as good as you can be, and you're really only competing with yourself because it's you who feels like crap if you play badly, not anybody else. But but I but I think that it creates the impression in in the eyes of the public that music is not of value because it's something that you can sit in judgment of as if you know everything. And and as we all know, opinions are like as we all know, which I'm not going to say on Radio Richard, everyone's got one. And, you know, opinions, actually, the only opinion that matters is your own artistic opinion. And, you know, if you're constantly, the approval that you should be seeking is yourself, you know, and I know how, how hard you work at the thing that you do, because you are the guy who can recreate any of those blues rock country sounds instantly and you know just how to do it and you have just the instrument to do it with and that's you know that's a lot of work and and uh, I don't think it helps the these shows help people appreciate how much work goes into this and that artists should be respected not judged so that's that's me that's my rant over with now
0: yeah, but I I, th- I I think that's accurate, and it's um, it's also that that thing of uh, the American X Factor has uh, has a band, hasn't it? Or at least it used to.
1: I guess so. I-
0: all of the shows, all of the shows here, um, everything is pre-recorded. Everybody does it d- does it in a studio, and then the artist comes out and they do their thing, and they're and they're you know they they're singing to track. Yeah, and that the kind of interaction. Um, on one of the rare occasions when there was a bit of freedom and I got out, went out with, uh, with a few of my colleagues and we got together and we were just sitting around, just catching up with each other. What everybody was saying was, well, first of all, when they finally got a chance to actually play with other people for the first time in ages, they played a song with other people and then said, Oh my God, that was exhausting. Do I have to do another one? <laughs> so a lot of what we used to do and just take for granted, um, we're going to have to build up um, and, you know, it, actually physically. Yeah. Uh, last week I, I, I did a set of ABC songs and I played guitar and I sang backing vocals and boy, it was i winded afterwards. I've been, I've, I've been lucky. I've been working. I've been doing sessions at home i've been writing but doing a session from home means great i'm gonna do a guitar pass and i'll go make a cup of tea and i'll come back and i'll do a bass pass and then i'll go make another cup of tea as opposed to actually you know doing the whole thing sure but a lot of people are saying wow you know it's just great being in a room with people again and i hope i hope that people will remember what that's like and maybe that will arrest the decline of studios and that thing that you were talking about which was uh, starting to be lost you you know where you said you have to make decisions in an instant because you're in in a room with other people and an artist and the decision that you make then decides how it's going to go sure Uh, a number of I'm lucky I work with I know a lot of main producers and there's one well-known Rock producer, you know, I I I won't mention his name, but uh, he's uh, he's mixed the Foo Fighters, and so he gets a lot of work mixing rock bands. And I pop into his studio to say hi one day, and he said, "You know, look at this. I've managed to take this track, and I've reduced it to 120 tracks. Now this is this is a rock band, so the label sent him." A rock band, and it's supposed to sound like two guitars, bass, drums. Yeah, simple rock. Yeah, you know, great, raw, straightforward. And he said, "Okay, here we have overhead left, overhead right, mics on all of the cymbals. Snare mic, snare mic beneath the snare. Yes, amp, guitar amp, guitar amp one, guitar amp two, close mic, distant mic. Yes, and all." and what it boils down to is exactly what, what George Martin used to say. He said, if you bring up the backing tracks of Sergeant Pepper individually, and you don't mix them, it sounds pretty much like Sergeant Pepper because they had to make decisions at the time. Correct. And you know, I am lucky enough to know Giles. He's played me some stuff. He sent me stuff that, you know when he was making love. Uh, so the things that he was just sort of mangling and and and, and right. convoluting, right? And right. he actually had to work really hard because a lot of the uh, a lot of the stems, they were an entire rhythm section and piano and and, and vocals. There wasn't enough. Sure. of absolutely.
1: Absolutely, <clears throat> I talk about this a lot uh, with with various people, and I was I was doing a, uh, an interview about engineers and how important they are. And I'm very excited that I'm going to be very soon doing an uh, interview with Shel Talmy, who oh cool, uh, who of course yeah revolutionized I think rock production yeah. single-handedly with The Who and The Kinks yeah. But we are in a world where people don't understand how great it is to have an ensemble playing and performing together. Now that would go for. I mean, the Who records and the Kinks records had a couple of overdubs here and there, but they were done yeah. live. And I yeah. the Rolling Stones records and all those great records that we all love. Uh, yeah. and And the rhythm sections of the Beatles were done pretty much live. And yeah. Yeah. not only that, this then moves into all my orchestral work, where for years and years, I have always said, if there's a singer involved and they want an orchestral arrangement, let's do it live, let's do it live. Yeah. Now, when you're working with somebody like Denise Williams, there is yeah. no problem doing that. But most singers yeah. are scared to death to do it. Yeah. And so there's a certain excitement that happens in the room when you are in a room with either, let's say six people playing together beautifully and having fun, or 60 people. Um, not very long ago, well, just before the pandemic struck, I did this record here, which is oh, cool. m- music for Tomb Raider. And, yeah. and a friend of mine, Peter Connolly, wrote all this music. And he's he came to me and said, I've loved all the stuff that you've done for the Pet Shop Boys, and I loved all the stuff you did for so-and-so. And I'd really like you to arrange all of these orchestral pieces for me, but I want you to not just orchestrate them, but I want to see some of that Richard nile stuff in there, and I want you to do whatever you think, you know, go, you have complete carte blanche to do whatever you want, and I got to go into a studio with the finest studio band I think I've ever used in my entire life, and that's saying something, Yeah. to record this stuff, and it was amazing the way that and i recorded it live you know that was yeah. it strings i was in angel it was one of the last uh, oh, yeah. sessions they did before they closed down yeah, yeah. And, and i was in there you know i had the strings in the middle i had percussion in one room i had a p- piano going clive dunstall yeah. played piano i had a beautiful brass section with john Thurkel and mark yeah. nightingale i had a fantastic woodwind section uh, I mean, it was just mind-blowingly good to be in that room with those people and to have what I had written performed with such love and and uh, expertise. It was just mind-blowing, and it would not have sounded as good if it were overdubbed.
0: I remember I, the last time I was an angel was after they'd uh, announced that they were that they were they were closing, and I just thought. What a sad, stupid waste! And I, I looked at the floor, and the floor, you know, this beautiful wooden floor, which is a complete mess because of all the instruments that have been dragged over there, and the, you know, the vibes and the percussion and the pianos, and you know, it was it was beat up, but it was beat up with love. Mm. And and Dudley always, she always used to insist on
1: using that because I'll tell you what, why she did and why I did is because the booths. You were able yeah. to, to to have things separated but still record together as an as a group, yeah. and that's why I'm sure I, I know that's why I record it there so often.
0: Part of the reason that Abby wrote, and if it weren't for Paul McCartney, it'd be it'd be closed now. You know, EMI would have sold it and turned it into flats. Mm-hmm. But it sounds good because Elgar designed the room. He designed one. Everything was designed. To sound good with orchestras playing and instruments playing so they all of the rooms complement the instruments and a little funny story when i was working with rumor we did a we we did a show which was you know live from studio two and so we went in there and we were just sort of messing around and uh rumor said so so tell me what what happened in here then I see. Yes. Well, again, the great thing about Two, and Mickey Delenz always tells the story about going in to see the Beatles and when the monkeys were over in, in Britain, the first thing they did was race down to Abbey Road and, you know, go and try to get some inspiration. And he said, we walked into this room, which looked like a school gymnasium. Right. And there are these four guys on the floor just working really hard and... Two or three guys up in the control room which was <laughs> up a really steep staircase right, right. You know, there's nothing nothing glamorous about it no but the
1: room sounds great that's right and no, every time every time you close down a space you lose that mm. and the other thing is engineers i mean engineers used to learn their trade by being tape ops and yeah. and apprenticing themselves to an experienced engineer. And I know this sounds like old fart stuff and I've said oh, yeah. it before in my Radio Richard interviews, but I but I really feel uh, that the apprenticeship thing is very, very important. I mean, in a way it's just exactly the same as a musician learning from a great musician. Uh, sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm gonna do another small rant. Everybody yeah. is in their rooms working on their own and you know they're not even playing the guitar and the bass or and and the instruments themselves they're using existing loops not just loops of, of rhythm patterns but actual musical loops that you can buy now yeah. where you can put a whole song together using somebody else's chord progression somebody else's yeah. drum beat somebody else's uh, song form you know, and and you don't have to know anything about music. And I did an interview with Lyle Mays where he said it's the triumph of modern uh, of modern technology to have this. But but of course that's it makes creativity a joke. I mean, people say I wrote this song. No, you didn't. What you did was you took some studio musicians recordings that they've already recorded of a one four five progression yeah. and you've used that or 1625 whatever it is and you've just stolen that and you've stolen that and you put it together like a jigsaw puzzle but a jigsaw puzzle of a Rembrandt is not the Rembrandt and so okay I've had my little rant I'm stopping now
0: yeah but but sometimes you can find uh sensitivity and creativity where you least expect it uh, I was working I've worked a lot over the years with a with a great um, underrated singer and writer, a guy called Noah Johnson. Who um, he's 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 Welsh, uh, but he was working some years ago with some some people in the Wu Tang Clan, and you know, like like you, you afforded me a great opportunity, and he afforded me an opportunity to to work with some of these people. Flew me out to New York. We'd go out to their studio, which was in deepest dark darkest Brooklyn every day. And they'd send a limousine for me to take me, take me down into the hood because, you know, they, they were worried about me, you know, they, they, they wanted me to be safe. Yeah. And there was this house they all had, which had different production suites. Now, first of all, Choco, who is uh, the Wu's main DJ. Anybody who says that, you know, DJs just sort of cut up other people's records, a real proper DJ Choco's mother, uh, well, he, he's actually trained as a clarinet player. His mother was actually in the film of Little Shop of Horrors and was also uh, a classically trained musician. So what he doesn't know about music isn't yeah. worth knowing. He's extremely right. sensitive and extremely talented. Right. And what they wanted me for was to um, provide some acoustic guitar over, over what they were doing with Noah. And so I wandered in there is this thing with that then some of the older guys said to some of the younger guys okay stop what you're doing come downstairs and i want you to check this out so i was just doing acoustic overdubs which i've done all my life yes and you could have heard a pin drop because all right. these people just watching what i was doing listening to what i was doing the engineer turned to his son who was so see that's how that happens. You don't yeah. get it
1: from a loop, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. And they
0: all, and, you know, they all, they all, they all went away and, get, you know, so, sort of, sort of beaming and uh, follow on from that story. At the time, I remember we we were rehearsing an S I R, and I was being put up at uh, at the Royalton, which was I think what's that, Forty Fourth Street. So S I R in New York, what's that, Twenty Second, Twenty Third? It was a nice day. And we decided to go up to the Royalton. So I was there with, you know, this posse. And they immediately, you know, there there was no question that they were gonna try to hire some cabs because no cabs were gonna stop for a bunch of black people, particularly those who, you know, got up in all the gear. I mean, they they were complete sweethearts and they they had, you know, all all the bling and everything else. But it was a nice day for a walk. And so we were, we were, we were walking up the road and um, prodigal son turned to me and, and said, hey, you know why all these people are staring at you? And said, oh, are people staring at me? I had no, you know, I was completely oblivious to this. I was just enjoying walking through New York on a sunny day. Right. I said, oh, yeah. He says, they're, they're thinking, who is this guy? He must be really famous to have all those bodyguards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, that, that's absolutely damning. But that was true. And the thing that it makes me think is that, of course, they were actually looking at them, not looking at you, because uh, <laughs> I, I, Rupert Holmes, told me a fantastic story about when he was first working with Barbara Streisand, and they went out to dinner together. And uh, as soon as they walked into the restaurant, every waiter in the place came, came running over and can I help you? And let me take your coat and to do this and 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 uh, get, or organizing her seat and and asking you know everything that she wanted and and they were always all over the table, and uh, Rupert Holmes slightly sarcastically said, uh, "Oh, the the service is really good here." it must be my jacket. <laughs> and, and Barbara Streisand looked over at him and said, oh, it is a nice jacket, yes, and went on with her meal. She didn't get the joke yeah. that it was, because it, it happened so often to her, it was nothing. Well, look, Matt, I can't believe you don't have any ABC stories. Come on.
0: Well, yeah, well, there's uh, there was one which comes to mind. We did the, uh, the Universal Amphitheatre. And the bus was parked up and doodling at like five in the morning. I forget, I, I think we were driving to Vegas or somewhere like that. And uh, so, you know, we had, we had some time off. We had a day off the following day. And so we went out and uh, a few of us, I don't know if you know Lily Gonzalez, but Lily decided that she was going to have an evening on the tequila and she was going to drag me into the tequila. And I was, uh, I was a willing victim. I haven't had a drink for a while now but uh, in those days I did. Yes. And uh, as I know that you've never partaken but tequila has this funny way of making you think that everything's fine until you get up and you start to try to walk and uh, your <laughs> appendages don't work anymore. And so uh, we got up and left the bar and then went back to the bus which was parked in the lot at Universal. You could look down into the Lot and the set for Desperate Housewives. So uh, Desperate Housewives was still being filmed uh, at the time. So uh, this must be what, 10 years ago? I, you know, I, uh, I yeah, don't know. Definitely. I thought, in, in, you know, I thought, hmm, I think I'll pop down there and have a look at uh, Desperate Housewives being filmed. Okay, so fortunately I had my laminate with me because the, uh, Rookie mistake is to leave your laminate on the bus, and then everybody thinks that you're on the bus, and then the bus leaves without you. I have my laminate, but the other rookie mistake that I made was um, to leave my phone on the bus. Mm -hmm. Now, when you and I toured, there were no mobile phones.
1: (laughs) Think about that.
0: If we missed the bus, we missed the bus, and that was that.
1: And I did often.
0: So I thought, great, well, I'll go down and and I'll. I'll watch it being filmed and then so I went down there because I had a laminate on, security didn't give me any grief, uh, okay I better go back to the bus, you know there was still a couple of hours before the bus was due to leave and I could see the bus up the hill but I realized the trip down was much harder than the trip back up, <laughs> I didn't have a flashlight, I didn't have anything, I thought how the hell am I going to get back to that bus and so. I threw myself on the mercy of the security guards and I said, I don't know how to get back to my bus. So uh, I think you're going to have to take me in. <laughs> I, I can't phone the tour manager because I left my phone on the bus. And so you're going to have to somehow find a way to reach the tour manager. <laughs> so they took me into the, uh, into the police station at the uh, at Universal, while while they got in touch with the tour manager, and the tour manager thought he was going to have to scrape me up off the floor, and thought you know I might have gotten into some kind of trouble, but it was yeah. just no. Nope. I left my phone on the bus. I couldn't call you. Sorry about this, but uh, anyway, it all it all ended happily.
1: We got through it. Yeah, I don't think people realize how difficult it is for musicians on tour. Um, the The interesting thing was when we did the Michael Ball tour together yeah um, the first night that I the the first gig that we did together we all went back on the bus the next morning I was called in by the manager I think 7:30 in the morning somebody knocked at my door and said he wants to see you downstairs you have to go down and see him traditional older British manager oh yes yes God. yes you know, remember I can't remember. You know, anyway. I went downstairs, I met him in the, you know, coffee room uh, of the hotel, and he said, we are furious with you. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, because you did not go backstage to speak to the artist last night after the show. And I said, well, you see, the bus left immediately, and I wouldn't have been able to get back to my hotel, and I had all of my equipment. They said, that is not our affair. It is customary in the theater for the musical director to come back to the dressing room and confer with the artist about the show and about anything that they might want changed. And I I said, well, yes, but how am I going to do that? The bus leaves very quickly. And I have to get my stuff. They said, that is not our problem. That is your problem. He said, yeah, I said, I see. So what happened was for the following, there were, I think there were 18 dates of that tour. And for the following 17 nights, I had to get a taxi back to the hotel because I had to go backstage and then it would have been okay if I could have just seen Michael and said, "You know, how was the show? oh, it was great or you know let's let's think about what we're gonna do in song number three or whatever. Oh no so I went back backstage every night and there was a party going on around here, yeah celebration to last throughout the year. I mean it was yeah. if you don't mind the quote uh and so and so um. You know, everybody else had brought their good times and their laughter too, but not me because I was waiting to try to catch that bus, but yeah. I never did. And so every night I had to wait for this enormous wild party going out. There were usually at least about 30 people in his dressing room going yeah. bonkers, driller killer uh, yeah. with with great amounts of liquid refreshment. Yeah. and And then after I'd waited... An hour and a half or two hours for this party to be over. Then I would get that moment when I said, um, "Michael, can we talk now?" He said, "Yeah. How was the show?" "Oh, great, wonderful, marvelous, dear, marvelous." And that was it every yeah. single night. So people don't yeah. realize how tough it is to be on a tour.
0: Well, especially for for, for someone in 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 your position, um, you know, having ha- having done a lot of. Uh, lot of stuff with our mutual friend Steve Brown over the years uh, and 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 Jess as well Jess Bailey um, sure, you know, yeah. wonderful musicians and people and musical directors yeah um you know particularly when we were on when Steve and I were on tour with uh, with Coogan with Steve Coogan right and that was you know that was an amazing tour and it took up the best part of a year and I you know we 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 would roll into town and take over a theater for three weeks or longer and I, I, I remember being in, uh, being in Manchester. We took over the Palace Theatre. We were there for three, three weeks, I don't know, maybe a month. And the Spice Girls were at the, at the arena. And we all had friends in, in the band. And so on their night off, they came to see our show. And then on our night off, we went to see their show. Right. And I was there the night that uh, Posh pulled Becks. And it was very much a case of Victoria pulling David Beckham. <laughs> it was yeah, I quite see. obvious. I see. And everybody in the band who are football fans, David Beckham over there, and, and you know, um, Mal Matic, uh, rest his soul. him. Yes. you know, he was, he, you know, he, he was sort of, you know, he was always a great observer of people. He was observing the situation, and I was completely, it was completely wasted on me. You know, I had no idea who David Beckham was. I didn't have any. I wasn't remotely interested in Manchester United. No. <laughs> what was going on? But I was there for that historic moment. But yeah. yeah, going back to what you were saying, what what Steve used to have to do was to go and 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 deal with um, let's see, and also you know we had we had Simon Pegg and Julia Davis on the tour, and this who've now become multi-megas, mega stars. Yeah. Yes. And it could be argued that the music was never. It wasn't just an addendum but it all had to tie in with with the drama
1: yeah and at
0: this particular time you know Steve Steve had a reputation for being uh, a bit of a a coogan that is not uh, not brown for for, for being a bit of a wild guy um and again he you know that's that's all gone he's 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 now squeaky clean but he was always extremely focused very hard working I had some good times with um, the, the slightly wilder guy on nights off, but you know, when, when there was work to be done, there was work to be done. Yeah, yeah. And he was focused, and Steve Brown was focused, but you know, Steve had to be able to talk to, to Coogan and make sure that the timings were right on the dramatic bits. And of course, Steve right. Brown has this dramatic sense and then relay the information to us. Yeah. Uh, you know, at which point we were relaxing in the bar. No relaxing in the bar for Steve Brown. Thank you very much. no, no. no because no, also no. at the same time he was doing Lenny Henry's TV show, so he was doing
1: wow. parts of that.
0: Yeah. So no, no, you it's know, it's great, very hard work for
1: you guys. Yes, it is indeed. It's a it's a job of masterful di- diplomacy and not getting much sleep because you're always having to work when everybody else is relaxing. I'm so glad that we get this chance to kind of show people a little bit of the behind the scenes of what's actually going on. What song are you going to do for us now? Okay,
0: well this is a song that I wrote fairly recently. I co-wrote it with uh, somebody I I believe you know, Susie Webb, who uh, was uh, a neighbor of yours and she sung with everybody, you know, Queen, The Who, you name it. And we were collaborating on songs And this just kind of occurred to us, and we knocked it together very quickly of an afternoon. And it's based on a true story. Uh, It's called The Dictator's Daughter. And I have a number of friends, I won't mention their names, but uh, they discovered that their putative fathers in law were not necessarily the uh, businessmen from another country that they purported to be, but had some kind of rather dodgy background. So anyway, this song was called The Dictator's Daughter. I Ryan in the library, she was looking back to see
2: if I was looking back. Pathology. When her gaze returned to me, I felt my senses start to stir. I didn't know just who she was with furies on her side. I thought they had her in their claws, and now I'm terrified because I'm in love with the dictator's daughter. I fell into her. Is bright and true with a soul like a gilded copper. What's it going to do? What's it
1: going to do? To do. Matt, I'm, I'm so happy that you've been able to do Radio Richard. Your musicians' funnies have been lovely, and it's great to be able to talk to you again. And I think it's the best thing for me is that you're able to sing some songs for us as a solo artist, because that proves that you're not just Matt Backer.
0: What's it called? Uh, Nominative determinism.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I was stretching on that joke, but I hope it worked. All right. Well, okay. Thanks, Matt, and lay, lay it on us. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, here to tell you about my podcast and my YouTube channel, Radio Richard. Now, the best things in life are free, people say, but are they really? I mean, the internet, for instance, you're paying for the service. Now, exercise, everybody says exercise is free. Well, no, you're paying with your sweat. But subscribing to Radio Richard is absolutely free. It costs you nothing. Not only that, we actually pay you with thought-provoking interviews and performances with amazing award-winning artists. Where else can you get my interviews with the greatest producers in music history? People like 80s innovator Trevor Horn, Arif Martin from Aretha Franklin to Chaka Khan, Shel me, producer of the brilliant sound of The Who and The Kinks, and Jerry Wexler, the man who was a co-founder of Atlantic Records and produced some of the greatest hits in history. So go ahead. Please like, share, and subscribe. You'll help keep this podcast alive and give the world better production values. Radio Richard. It's absolutely free. Radio Richard.